before that, the basically the, the northeastern quadrant was what the NBA was composed of. And now that it was spreading, which Saperstein had, had thought would be a good idea, he was now behind the curve because they had seen it also and they moved and he had, even though he bid for a franchise for the West Coast, uh, they weren't interested in him. So he decided he would try and find another way and the other way turned out to be trying to start another league. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Corey Coates on the announcing duties. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it as always. Hi, my name's Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seats Still Available, that curious little podcast that's devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you so much for joining us uh, either for the first time or again after having listened to other episodes. Uh, either way, we appreciate you putting us uh, in your earbuds and giving us a chance to uh, entertain you or at least uh, uh, stave you off from boredom from other things that may be uh, uh, tackling or uh, uh, vying for your attention in uh, in your lives. Uh, today, we are uh, back on the topic of basketball. We haven't done a whole lot on it, but we uh, will be doing quite a bit more of it uh, in the uh, weeks and months to come. And in particular, we're focused on uh, the existence of a team that uh, most people uh, overlook in the uh, in the history uh, of the game. Uh, and in particular, it's called the American Basketball League. And that was the second incarnation of such, or at least the name of, uh, in the early 1960s, specifically 1960 to 1963. And uh, one of the key drivers of the existence of that league, arguably the driver of that league, and his name is Abe Saperstein. And most people, of course, know uh, Mr. Saperstein as the uh, the person who uh, almost single-handedly took uh, uh, an interesting concept known as the Harlem Globetrotters uh, and made them a worldwide phenomenon and uh, international ambassadors uh, to and of the game of basketball. Um, Mr. Saperstein uh, was inducted into the uh, basketball Hall of Fame in 1971, and and largely because of his uh, his contributions uh, to the game with the Globetrotters uh, and such, but um, actually uh, should be noted quite uh, deeply for uh, what he started with this thing called the American Basketball League in the early 60s, and that's what we're here to talk about with our guest, Murray Nelson, Dr. Murray Nelson, that is, a longtime educator and uh, uh, professor uh, who, frankly, for the love of the game, uh, and the curiosity that drove him to learn more about it uh, became and has become uh, a go-to author and historian on many things around basketball history. The book that we're going to be circling our interest around today is called Abe Saperstein and the American Basketball League, uh, The Upstarts Who Shot for Three and Lost to the NBA. It's published by our friends at McFarland, uh, and uh, you can obviously get a copy of that uh, through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com or wherever fine books are sold. Uh, but we do want to spend a few minutes with uh, Professor Nelson talking about uh, uh, the history and the legacy of Abe Saperstein and this league that he uh, upstarted, if you will, uh, in the early 60s. And and some interesting names come about uh, in the process. You'll hear a little bit of uh, some interesting stories about people like Jerry Lucas. Uh, you will hear uh, Connie Hawkins, who well regarded and, and, and a basketball Hall of Famer he and uh, a little gentleman by the name of George Steinbrenner makes an appearance and uh, in a dramatically uh, important way as well. So all that stuff to come in a couple of seconds with our guest, 
Murray Nelson uh, in just a couple of seconds. Uh, I want to remind you that we are yet again sponsored by our friends at Audible, uh, who remind you that you can get a free audiobook download and a free sample of their service for 30 days. And you can cancel at any time, which is a cool thing, too, uh, at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And as you know, Audible is the premier provider of digital audiobooks there out there in the world and the planet. Uh, and uh, it's uh, that means over 180,000 plus titles uh, to choose from in just about every genre of writing that you can imagine, whether that be sci-fi or thrillers or business or romance or comedy or nonfiction, you name it, Audible probably has it. Uh, titles from Audible play on just about every device that you can throw at it, from the iPhone platform to Kindle to Android. Uh, there's more than five, five, 500 devices that you can kind of, you know, utilize the Audible service for. And again, a reminder, if you want a free trial of uh, 30 days in length or and or, well, that, that, and or and and includes as part of that trial is a free audiobook download. The place to do that and to help support our little show is audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats and uh, get your free trial and your free audiobook download today, as they say. Thank you for doing so. You're helping support the show if you do. And uh, it's a great service, too. I use it all the time, and uh, I don't understand why you don't. So stop what you're doing. Pause this show. Go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Subscribe now. Give it a try, will you? Thanks. We'll wait. Okay, we're back. All right. Thank you. Uh, that is uh, our sponsor. Thank you. We, we appreciate Audible's uh, sponsorship very much. And uh, we appreciate you listening to our conversation uh, with Murray Nelson about the ABL and Abe Saperstein coming up right now. I would love to uh, perhaps just start with uh, why you became interested in Abe Saperstein, the American Basketball League in, in general. You're you're an educator by trade, right? Well, yes, uh, but but that was later. Uh, I became interested in Abe Saperstein and and the AB, well, not the ABL, Saperstein and and anything with Chicago basketball because of growing up in Chicago and. Uh, he lived on the north side and he went to the same high school that my brother did, although he went a lot earlier than my brother did. Uh, and and there were the Globetrotters were around quite a bit in Chicago and, and they would come to the uh, when we moved to Deerfield and we saw him in the high school. And and then there was a guy named Bunny Levitt, who you may or may not know. He worked for Converse. He was one of their representatives. And for a time, he held supposedly the world record of making 499 free throws in a row. And he and my dad had gone to high school together. Uh, and so we went and saw him. And so he, all of this little Chicago basketball stuff was of interest to me when I was younger, though I never really saw, saw basketball played until I moved to the suburbs in Deerfield. Despite growing up in Chicago, either I was oblivious to it or there just wasn't Chicago basketball being played on, on my playgrounds at uh, the schools I was at. And when I went to, uh, when I went to camp, I went to a camp that was up, a Y camp that was up near Wisconsin and uh, first got in contact with basketball and, and won uh, an award for, mo for my age group for, for most baskets made in a minute. So you can imagine how, uh, how skillful that you had to be to make baskets in a minute. But so I was, I was interested in, in those things. And then 
just started reading. I was a big reader about sport history. And when I was in high school, I wrote what I considered at the time uh, a history of professional basketball. Uh, it was uh, uh, for uh, a, an English class. I think it was, uh, it might have been 25 handwritten pages. So that seemed to sum up the history of professional basketball as far as I was concerned. And uh, kept that interest alive and and then just would read and play and eventually started to read more. And this kind of ABL interest uh, grew when the uh, when the the majors played in Chicago. Um, my my dad had passed away by then, and one of his former business partners was the owner of the Chicago Packers. And uh, so we were able to get tickets to go to see the Packers play, and it annoyed me that they weren't playing in Chicago Stadium, but that's where the majors were playing. And some of this didn't fit together for me. I had to try and determine why these things would happen. And also could read in the paper then about how the majors were doing. They weren't covered very well, but they did cover the Tribune, at least covered their box scores and a little bit about them. So I was able to, to follow some of that, but I was much more interested in the, the Chicago Packers. And that just kept me interested in Chicago basketball and, and the NBA and the, and the ABL for that one year and a half. Well, that's interesting. So the Chicago majors, obviously, uh, the entry in the ABL, um, and obviously, uh, uh, I guess at least nominal competition. Um, did you, uh, do you have any vivid memories of, of going to any of those games, either on the major side at the ABL or the Packers, uh, or any, oh, any sure. the, yeah, yeah the, the, I, I never went to an ABL game because as I said, my father had passed away the year before. So I went to games with my mother and we got tickets from Dave Traeger, who was the, the Packers president. And he put us in a nice, you would call it a box at the uh, International Amphitheater. Uh, the, the court was set up with four kind of half towers in each of the four corners. So we got a, a box, as it were, in the tower there. And we could go to, uh, well, games to see anybody except the Celtics, because the Packers never filled the... Uh, the arena, except I assume they came close to doing it for the Celtics and he could make money. But since it was not costing him that much, uh, we would go and I would take a friend of mine from high school or junior high, and we would go to, uh, to see the Packers play and saw every team, but the Celtics play. And I had you know particular Packer players. And then the next year they became the, uh, the Zephyrs uh, and most of those guys were, were the same players. They just changed the name. And uh, I grew to got more and more fond of pro basketball and started to play more and more basketball. And that was, you know, I have no particular vivid memories other than seeing Will Chamberlain play and being amazed at, at how, what he could do and how big he was. No, no doubt. And uh, we actually devoted a, an episode to, uh, Wilt's uh, exploits as a professional volleyball player as well, which is a whole other sort of side to him that was uh, didn't come as out. As well as the, a track star. You got it. He was, uh, he was quite he was quite memorable on so many different levels. Well, all right. So how did yeah, you yeah. how did the ABL sort of creep into your consciousness then? And then in particular, how did it become sort of worth 
pursuing as a as a written uh, uh, work for yourself? Well, as I said, I'd like to read about basketball history, and the ABL was was at most a footnote to what I was reading. But uh, when I came back from uh, living, I'd been living in Norway for a year on a uh, a Fulbright fellowship and wanted to read more basketball when I got back and got interested with reading about the original Celtics. And I really knew very little about the original Celtics, but I was intrigued by them and what they did and read more and more. And I wanted to read a book on the Celtics and there wasn't one. And piecing stuff together, I realized that I was going to write a book on the Celtics. And indeed, that was my first basketball history book uh, that is called The Originals, The New York Celtics Invent Modern Basketball, and was published as part of uh, Bowling Green had a uh, popular press, which went out of business some years after that, and all of their stock and, and publication rights were sold to the University of Wisconsin Press. So that's what still makes the book available uh, on a very meager basis, I'm sure. But that got me interested in, in reading about that. And then I started to move forward and reading more about other neglected basketball history. And the ABL kept popping into place because I knew so little and was interested in in finding out more and, and then wrote a piece. It was for uh, the North American Society for Sport History. I, I did some research and, and wrote... Uh, what became a lengthy paper and on on the uh, on the ABL and wanted to do more and it kind of just developed into becoming a, a book over the next two or three years and that's and it got me interviewing people which is probably the most fun of of doing some of these books finding guys who are still alive who still have lucid memories and can give you some vivid depictions of what was going on and tell you some things that make you laugh, like how little they were paid and the travel, which also was interesting. Well, I guess thematically your interviews probably started to coalesce probably very quickly around this guy named Abe Saperstein, right? Yes. Uh, he was, uh, he was a guy that got people talking and, and then finding as many players that were alive and could talk the, most of the other players, except for guys on, on the Chicago teams, uh, most didn't have much to say about uh, Saperstein at all, just because they didn't have a whole lot of contact with him. But uh, the people that knew him certainly knew him as the colorful person that he was and the, the driving force of the league. And uh, the, so when you talk to the players then, how how did they – get interested in being, I guess, part of a challenger to the established NBA or other professional exploits out there, right? Because obviously it's a risky proposition to play professionally for something that's so new and untested and and arguably uh, coming from the world of, you know, barnstorming and, and such that, uh, that, that Saperstein was known for previously. Well, he was, but uh, they... They offered, in many cases, the players just went economically. They were offered more money. Or the other possibility was that Saperstein was very uh, attuned to trying to get guys who were from a region to be playing in that region. So they, they, their draft kind of was 
a draft that allowed for a lot of uh, movement and uh, shifting players around, trying to get guys who were playing for a particular ABL team and were from a, a region that was where the ABL team was located. And between that, being able to play before semi-home fans and getting paid as much or more, uh, it was it was fine to be playing with the ABL. You know, the NBA, NBA wasn't that old at that point, and pay was really ridiculously low. So uh, you didn't often see that there would be a great future in playing for the NBA. Either people retired in their early 30s uh, if they if they made it that far. So a few years in one league or another didn't seem to make any difference. They could make a little more money and they could be closer to home. Well, let's step back for a second, because obviously uh, Saperstein was uh, a known entity in basketball circles, right? And obviously not necessarily in the sort of uh, professional circuit world, but uh, in his and we don't have to sort of go too deep in the Harlem Globetrotters, but arguably that's how he became known amongst basketball people, right? And gave him enough credibility to even have hopes of starting a professional challenger league to the NBA. Right? Absolutely. There was every, everybody knew who Saperstein was because of the Trotters and the Trotters used to play uh, what we would call legitimate basketball. I mean, there's the, the one book that deals with uh, uh, the famous game of the Lakers and the, the Trotters in 1948 that the, the Trotters won on a last second shot by Irma Robinson, 61 59. And, the, the Globetrotters players were respected. Saperstein was seen as a, as a promoter of himself and his team, but they recognized that the players that he had were great players. And with the uh, segregation that was, was true societally, the, uh, there was a great appreciation for some of the, the African-American players because they were very limited in where they could play and, and how they could play by segregation, even up until that time in 1961. Well, so let's also maybe get to why Saperstein decided he wanted to even take a shot at the current NBA, right? It, it, the, the origins of it were pretty specific, right? I mean, he, he was trying yeah. to get involved in the NBA somehow via a franchise, yeah. but that didn't yeah. sort of go well, right? Well, he had he had wanted to to start a franchise in what he thought would be a good place for him and for them, and that was California. And I don't think he was, he was, he was too much of a showman for the NBA owners at that time. And, and they, they, they might've accepted his money because they were interested in that, except then there was this, the first expansion and shifting where the, uh, the warriors were just not making it in Philadelphia and decided to move to San Francisco at the same time, uh, or just a after Minneapolis, uh, Lakers had not done well and had moved to L.A., and they had started the, the movement to the West Coast. Uh, a, a lot of things were changing. Saperstein was not able to get in on that because of, of their becoming a national league. Before that, the, basically the, the Northeastern Quadrant was what the NBA was composed of. And now that it was spreading, which Saperstein had, had thought would be a good idea, he was now behind the curve because they had seen it also and they moved and he had, even though he bid for a franchise for the West coast, uh, they weren't interested in him. So he decided he would try and find another way. And the other way turned out to be trying to start another league. Cause there were, 
Now, the league was small. There had to be enough players to go around. Uh, there were only eight, and then when the, the Packers came in, there were only nine teams in the league with 12-team roster, 12-player roster. The, you know, it's just over 100 players. So he knew he could get the players. What, was there, I mean, was he ever promised anything, or was he led to believe that the NBA, because of his, I guess, work and promotional work, with the with the trotters and other things and, and and games like you mentioned earlier, you know, playing with NBA teams or against NBA teams, was he ever sort of promised or led to believe that he was going to have an entree somehow for a team? Uh, I would guess the answer would be yes, led to believe. I don't know that there were promises, but you can't tell. In those Saperstein papers, there's there's nothing that indicates that. So if if so, it was done orally, and uh, maybe at games and. People ex- express their appreciation because the NBA was a, a loser in a lot of ways financially, but the, the Trotters drew, drew crowds. And since they would play the opening game a lot of places, he was appreciated, but I don't think he was respected. That's very interesting. So, okay, so how does he how does he go about even trying to do this, right? It seems like he started to go towards the sort of the amateur sort of route and find sort of the best players there and try to convince them that creating a second sort of challenger professional organization was uh, possible and uh, and worthwhile doing? Well, the, the two places I think he looked first were first the, uh, the National Industrial League, National Industrial Basketball League, which allowed people to work for uh, a business a company and then played ball for that company too. And a number of teams, a number of companies sponsored teams in this, and they were still considered semi-pros. They probably were considered amateurs for the Olympics, but they were getting paid to work for the company and play basketball coincidentally. Uh, How much they worked, what they did is is not clear. Some actually had uh, professional backgrounds which would have lent themselves to some of the work, but that probably was not the reason they were they were hired. And so he went to the NIBL, which was now folding. It just became too expensive for them to keep up. I think the NBA had pushed the NIBL out of things much more. They weren't drawing the same people uh, and, and paying them as much. So the NIBL folded, and he also looked to the military, where some guys played went into the military and played and that was smaller, but it was possible. And that, again, was for a long time, that was one of the places where the Olympics uh, were able to, to draw people to play for the American Olympic team, the industrial leagues, the, the uh, military, and, of course, colleges, which were not very well represented in uh, the Olympics initially because these were much younger guys. Plus, they, uh, America was so much better at basketball, it probably wouldn't have mattered who they had. But... He, he went to those places and then looked to, uh, to try and bid against uh, the NBA for players that were coming out. They, it wasn't high bidding. Uh, he had to find owners. And again, he found guys who had been either sort of connected to the uh, Industrial League or people who were in certain regions who were what we might call sports entrepreneurs and um, company owners and tried to get them involved and it wasn't that hard and they didn't have to pay that much they were dealing on a lot of hope and promises 
Um, do you sense that? Uh, so there's a guy named Paul Cohen, right? Which seems to pop up. Yeah. Who, who was, I guess, I don't know. Kind From of Washington. Yeah, was he kind of the co-creator of this league with Saperstein? It was largely Saperstein's idea, and he kind of just came along for the ride. Hard to tell. Again, the papers don't reveal uh, exactly where it came from, but he talked with a number of people, and I think in talking, uh, some were positive, some were noncommittal, uh, some probably said, "You're you're nuts, and don't I don't want to be involved." But Cohen was very positive, and. So if you want to call him a co-creator, I, I guess you could. I mean, Saperstein came up with the idea and tried it on a lot of different people. Cohen picked up on it more than others and suggested other people, and it kind of networked from there. Well, and in that networking, right, another very uh, popular and maybe even divisive figure sort of pops up uh, relatively early on in the history of this league. And his name is George Steinbrenner. Do you want to kind of give us a little yeah. sense of that, of like how well, who he was you know, and where he came as from? You, as you know, he was from the, the shipbuilding company in Cleveland and was interested in sport. And the Pipers, which were the Cleveland NIBL team, was part of uh, sponsorship from Steinbrenner's family. He was pretty young. He wanted to be more involved. And... He also, as we all know, he had a had a big ego and wanted people to to notice him. He saw this as a chance to assert himself when the Pipers were folding and getting a chance to to be a prominent sports figure in professional sports at that time. And uh, he was certainly able to afford the entry fee because it wasn't very much, and to to have a uh, have a team on his on his payroll and uh, picked up with with uh, Saperstein pretty quickly. Well, all right. So let's 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 see how the so the, the season sort of begins in earnest in in 1961. Uh, can you give some sort of, uh, you know, sort of survey, I guess, of sort of the teams and the quality of them and, and how he kind of got eight, you know, franchises kind of up and running and and, and the, the relative stability or not of 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 that uh, of that circuit well it was it was never a big money maker but many times i can tell you the the majors outdrew the packers in chicago which wasn't saying much huh. because the packers weren't drawing they were in a uh the chicago coliseum uh is it still there uh, it is not, but uh, I suspect, okay. though, that well, it was probably a more, uh, I don't know, uh, interesting or intriguing or well-trod uh, facility than, say, the amphitheater was? Uh, no, the amphitheater actually was, people knew about, it was, and it had much better parking and much better uh, public transportation to get to the amphitheater because it had so many different shows. Ah. You know, they weren't just uh, farm shows and animal shows. There were flower shows and trade shows, decorating shows. There are there lots of shows at the amphitheater. So there was a lot of parking, and it was relatively easy uh, to get there compared to the Coliseum, which did not have good parking or public uh, transportation lines. It, it was not a, a great place to go. So uh, in Chicago, the, the, uh, the majors were doing as well as, as the Packers, and of course, uh, Dave Traeger saw that, and after two years, he, uh, they moved to Baltimore. But as for the uh, other places, uh, 
Cleveland wanted to be seen as a big-time place, and Steinbrenner wanted to be seen as a big-time place himself. And so that was, that was not difficult to get him involved. He also had access to the players from the Pipers, and that was good for him. And then Pittsburgh was, again, a place that was not known for its basketball, and they were they were fortunate enough to be able to sign Connie Hawkins, who had already been blacklisted because of his short time at the University of Iowa. Uh, and having Hawkins made Pittsburgh uh, made made them a good draw everywhere, just because Hawkins could do amazing things with a ball. You know, when I said I saw Chamberlain play and could, was amazed at how he could just dunk the ball and his his little fadeaway off the board, which he would take from the post position. He was, he really was unstoppable. Hawkins was unstoppable in another way in that he could palm two basketballs in one hand. I mean, his hands were gargantuan and he could shoot, he could move, he was fast. So Pittsburgh was able to draw and anybody they had around him was, was good enough. And, and then in, in New York, that was not successful. Uh, the, the Knicks were too popular, even with being bad. And they were, uh, they were not going to continue to draw well. And eventually, of course, uh, uh, they, were ha- they had to fold. In the West, as I said, most of the, everything in the NBA was in the, the Northeastern Quadrant. So anything beyond Chicago wasn't seen as real basketball anyway. And that was uh, disturbing to those people who were farther west. Kansas City was uh, was very popular. I, again, an NIBL team, and the the other places were really exotic. I mean, playing in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Hawaii changed the way they had to schedule. But these were all possible because now, with the advent of real air travel, it could be done. Before everything was done by train, and once people they were able to lower the cost and increase the number of flights air travel made basketball coast to coast much more popular and much more possible uh there was i remember when i was a oh probably 11 or 12 uh some teams used their own planes the lakers were one of the few and their plane crashed in a cornfield in iowa and that promoted a uh, prompted a an article in Sport Magazine in about 1958 or 59 called What Happens If a Team's Plane Goes Down? And that was unusual, though. Most of the teams were traveling on commercial airlines. They're, they did not, uh, or charters. They, they, they didn't own a plane. So it was, it was a, a chance for many places that had not had teams to become what they considered big league. Remember, the, the major leagues had not in baseball hadn't expanded that way football hadn't so in the west this was a real opportunity for teams west of chicago to show that they were uh, they were important also well, there's a bunch to unpack there right so n- number 1 you talk about Connie Hawkins and, and the Pittsburgh Wrens right um uh, was there some conjecture as to who actually owned the Wrens because some when i've read uh, Mr. Cohen seemed to not only own the the tapers uh, moving from Washington to New York during the first season, but also secretly owned or had an ownership stake in the Wrens too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He did, and just the same way that uh, Saverstein 
was the commissioner and and owned the uh, the majors and probably also had a a little stake in the uh, in the team in San Francisco, but that didn't bother any of the owners. They knew what was going on, and you couldn't say that they were violating antitrust laws because they were their own entity and they were uh, competing against the NBA and. There, there wasn't. It didn't seem to be there that there was any collusion in the throwing of games and and uh, working with gamblers. So uh, it's just the way it was. They had a small number, and they would take any amount of. Uh, they had a small number. They take money from anybody just so they could get their themselves up and running. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, the tapers for a second. His uh, is effectively his other team. Uh, you mentioned the Knicks' uh, prowess, so to speak, or at, le- at least their their drawing power. I don't know about their on the court performance, but so what would convince him to to move the team, uh, the tapers, that is, from Washington to New York, and 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 in mid season at that? Given that, uh, again, all I can say is that they didn't draw well in Washington, and he probably was getting uh, squeezed in terms of getting dates. And there weren't as many venues and thought he he had a better chance in New York. I don't know why. I mean, I don't have there, there's no financial data that reveals precisely what he was making or losing in Washington vis-a-vis what he was losing in New York. But I guess he thought the metro area being so much bigger in New York and basketball being so much more appreciated in New York. And he had some good ball players that he would he would be able to draw. The Knicks were terrible. He had to figure that they'd at least play as well as the Knicks did or better. Yeah, but that experiment also didn't last too long either because he moved the team to Philadelphia for the following season. So it's it's a very yeah, interesting yeah. Jo- it was, hopping. It was a a real movable feast. There were, there just wasn't enough uh, attendance vis-a-vis the amount of expenses and expenses were relatively low because the players weren't getting paid it the what they needed more than anything and it's what created uh big basketball professional basketball was a solid television contract to draw fans and to get another source of uh, another revenue stream and they they just did not have it Uh, neither did the nba Right, certainly, and obviously, uh, the I- history would show that, of course, that uh, that made a difference, especially with things like the AFL, which sort of uh, helped that uh, process along in football. All right, well, let me before we get past this first season, right? I, um, you know, I, there are two other sort of franchises that sort of stick out, right? One is uh, Hawaii, just by the fact that it's Hawaii. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty bold move for 1961 to assume that jet travel is going to make a you know, how many multiple time zone difference, especially from the East Coast, that that could actually be a viable franchise in an eight team league. Yeah, it was it was a crazy notion, but they had to adjust the schedule in order to uh, to make that kind of appeal. They had Art Kim as a Hawaiian owner who was willing to put up the money and he was willing to to provide more of a subsidy for visiting teams. So that was convincing. And then they had the hopes that they would have no problems with with air travel. But Hawaii essentially played uh, a homestand, which basketball teams generally didn't do. They would play uh, six, five to seven games in a row at home. 
as teams would rotate in and out. And since there were teams in Los Angeles and San Francisco, a team would fly and do uh, play in each of those places. And they might even play two out of three in Hawaii or play two games in Hawaii. So it, it changed the nature of basketball scheduling. It has not gone back to that. It was re- unique at the time. It's still unique, but it was, it was a way to adjust. And then when the, uh, the, uh, the chiefs would be on the road, they'd really be on the road. They'd be gone for uh, a couple weeks at a time. And that was just the only way to do it. And the other exotic, I guess, location or story, certainly that first season, um, was the Saperstein-backed Los Angeles Jets, which didn't even make it past the first season, you'd think would be, you know, in the pristine and sort of green fields of Los Angeles. But I suspect that the fact that a new NBA team had uh, just moved there was uh, was daunting, no? Yeah, and I think that's what it was, too. I mean, L.A. had had pushed hard to try and get professional basketball. And when uh, they got the Lakers, there was a lot of commitment on the part of the business community to back the Lakers and to promote the Lakers. And then the Jets come and there just wasn't enough of a tradition for it to extend to the Jets. And they didn't have guys playing on their team that were going to appeal necessarily to the locals. I mean, their, their top scorer was George Yardley, who was, uh, had, had gone to Stanford. At least he was uh, from California, but, uh, and had led the NBA in scoring uh, a couple years before. But that wasn't enough. Uh, Yardley was not a colorful player. He was a good shooter and a great free throw shooter. And then they had Bill Sharman, who was at the end of his career, who was both coaching and, and had finished up his career pretty much with the Celtics. But aside from that, there weren't, weren't a whole lot of, guys, a lot of guys who who you would have heard of, and and people would have heard of who they would come out to see on the uh, on the Jets at that time. Uh, that's uh, it, it's just it's just interesting, and you can just just feel the shakiness of all of it. But um, all right, but so let's let's maybe circle back to what is probably maybe one of the more defining moments in that first season, and obviously a harbinger to what would come. And that's uh, that's the sort of fiery temper and uh, and shall we say ego driven uh, uh, ownership style of George Steinbrenner and uh, and what he was doing with the Pipers. Now, to the Cleveland Pipers credit, right, they won everything the first year. They won the first cha- first and arguably only championship. But it wasn't yes. it wasn't a straight line. Now, was it that during that season? No, uh, Steinbrenner was was a shock at the time. Difficult to work with. He was, uh, he was impatient, he was young, and he wanted to have as much attention to his team so it could bring it to him also. So with, uh, with that team, he had a couple of things that were unusual. First, he had the NIBL guys, and second, he had the first African-American coach in, in having uh, Irma Robinson, uh, or John McClendon. Irma Robinson came later, but McClendon had been the coach with the NIBL and the McClendon was a fabulous coach, but he was an African-American and it was, uh, it was confusing to, to people I'm sure because there had never been an African-American coach of any of the major sports. And uh, there was still a time of tremendous 
segregation, despite Brown v. Board of Education in 54, we know that there was still tremendous segregation throughout the South and into uh, parts of the North. And so that um, some people who might have come to see Cleveland would not have just because they weren't uh, crazy about McClendon. But, and then there was Dick Barnett, who was their, their leading scorer. They didn't sign him until later, but Barnett uh, was always very colorful. He had been at the Lakers, and um, Barnett and his famous jump shot, we kicked his legs up, and he was left-handed, and often would, uh, his famous expression of lay back baby, where he would be, uh, he would be shooting and wanted the ball to, to go off the board and in, and he, people didn't know what to do with Barnett. He was he was popular because of his scoring. He was unpopular because he was he was outspoken and African American. And then John Cox was a great scorer and had played in Kentucky, uh, was a was their leading scorer in terms of total number of points. And they had uh, other African Americans who were top scorers, and it was uh, you know John Barnhill, Ben Warley, uh, and then they had uh, Larry Siegfried, who who was a great draw for Cleveland because he had played on the Ohio State teams that had gone from uh, 59 to, to 61 and won an NCAA championship and finished twice uh, second to Cincinnati. So it was a, a colorful team, but Steinbrenner did not help with constant complaining about the refereeing, that he was getting jobbed here and there. And who knows, maybe he was, but uh, he was... He was not pleased that his, his team wasn't drawing as much as he wanted, and he was still willing to, to, to pay when he needed to. Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The Ten Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue, uh, that could be interesting to our audience here is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly, entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two, uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial, as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. 
Do you think he saw Steinbrenner, the uh, the opening, I guess, if to, to get into an ABL kind of fledgling sort of challenger thing? Do you think he had at that time sort of seeds of interest or uh, what he would might feel would be inevitability that the, ultimately the NBA would be beckoning either through a merger or all that kind of stuff? Or do you would that be giving him too much credit at that early stage? Mm, I I actually think he would have had that in mind. I mean, it may have been giving him too much credit, as you say, but he was looking beyond. He wanted to be, Steinbrenner always wanted to be big time. I mean, look at him buying the Yankees and just the fact that he bought the Yankees, he thought that made him big time. And then wanting to constantly be seen as, as the center of the Yankees, even though he was the owner, no owner got the kind of attention that he did. And I think he saw it then that he, he could get the ABL and his team somehow into big time ball and they would get the attention and he would get the attention that he thought he deserved, whether it came from a merger, which certainly Saperstein would have enjoyed having if the conditions were right, or just the, uh, the fact that some of the teams would be plucked and taken into the league if they, if the ABL ended up folding, uh, I have to assume that Steinbrenner was thinking that way because he was always thinking about what would benefit him. Well, how would you, to the extent that you know, how would you characterize maybe the early relationship between Steinbrenner and, and Saperstein in terms of getting the league going and stuff? Was it close? Do you think they were on the same sort of wavelength? Obviously, Abe was thinking about the NBA as well and arguably was starting this because he was rebuffed by the NBA originally. The the way the two had their personalities there would be parts that they just would not get along because they were both very egocentric and bullheaded. But at the same time, they had, they saw that there was, there were advantages to working together and they had the same goals in mind, but uh, it, it would have been tough personally, but I think they, they would have put that aside because they, each would think they were using the other one in order to get with what the individual wanted. And of course what they, they, they wanted more than anything was to have television and, and they made efforts at television individually, both Safferstein and, and uh, Steinbrenner were making efforts to try to get some sort of contact with uh, someone to try and get, get on the, uh, get on a, a, a weekly, a monthly, a, a CBS sports special, something to give them attention. So this then, it sounded to me then that it sounds to me that that this was more a we might have a chance to kind of uh, not only go toe to toe with the NBA, but maybe even show them or go further than them versus trying to get them to, quote unquote, capitulate or, or eventually merge or that kind of stuff. Right. Well, I have to think at least those guys thought that and they must have convinced the other owners, too. I mean, the I think the other owners uh, looked to to Saperstein for guidance. He'd been around for a long time. He'd been successful. He had had you know, uh, uh, Negro League contacts and he had contacts all over the country in baseball and in basketball. And so they, they had to assume if he didn't know precisely what he was doing, he was leading them in a direction that would lead to success for all of them because he had nothing to fall back. He had the Globetrotters, but he didn't have another business besides that. He didn't have uh, shipbuilding or 
furniture companies or whatever it was, he didn't have it other than basketball. Well, okay, but that uh, that clearly also extended to the rules of the game, right? So the, arguably that's, you know, from a fan's perspective and a player's perspective, right? The, the ABL, you know, there were three major, you know, differences from uh, from the rules perspective that arguably made the game a little bit more exciting, more interesting, more competitive. Uh, do you want to speak about those three uh, major well, rule changes? Uh, the first was the most obvious and and it's had the most long-lasting effect, and that was the three-point shot. It had been talked about. It had been experimented once in a while, some places, no place for very long. Uh, there were always efforts from the time since post-war period to say, what can we do to make the game a little faster, a little more exciting? You know, basketball, for the most part, when it came out of the – when the Celtics basically created – uh, fast moving basketball, the fast moving part was all on the floor and it was all to promote getting an inside shot. Uh, if you, if you move the ball fast, if it didn't touch the floor, then eventually someone was going to slip open inside and you would, you would score and then you would get the ball back quickly by playing, uh, over aggressively on defense. Uh, the three point shot was going to, to modify that, but ultimately the three point shot would make that better. Because if you had to have people drawn out, it left the inside more open. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. And it made stars out of some guys who, who weren't quite fast enough. They were fast or adequate to play good ball, but they were great shooters. And there was no reward for being a great shooter. I mean, you can say, well, you were a great shooter, so you could shoot well, but you didn't get any extra points for it. But being a... Uh, a great shooter like like Tony Jackson for uh, what was ultimately the New York team and and his shooting. Uh, he had played at St. John's and been a great shooter there. He'd been most valuable player in the uh, in the NIT when St. John's had been in the NIT because that meant something. There was no uh, it was a very small tournament with the NCAA uh, when it first started. So uh, the NIT meant as much as winning the, the NCAA and Jackson was a fabulous shooter and he, he led the league in three point shooting and it, it made a, a tremendous difference in people's interest. It may not have made much of a difference in New York winning any more games, but it certainly had people talking more about the distance and it was a distance. And then the, the second thing was how to open up the game even more was to uh, to make a bigger lane so people couldn't camp in there as much and they took the straight lanes and made it and made the uh, made the lane uh, trapezoidal and so it started at the uh, the top of the key and and went at an angle of about 45 degrees in each direction so the lane was much bigger which meant that it would be much more open and you could have more people driving and it made the game faster because you could drive. And of course, uh, with three pointers on the outside and driving on the inside, the game was going to increase in speed. And there had been a number of games where it had been so slow that the fans weren't showing up. And that's when the, the NBA put in the 24 second rule, which speeded up the game. And in order to make it as good or better, the uh, ABL had the 30-second rule, and and that also 
gave them a little more time, but it still kept kept the game going fast. And uh, basketball changed from being an on-the-floor, fast-moving game that didn't go anywhere to uh, a game that was played inside and outside, more shooting, more rebounding. There was more action other than just uh, the kind of action you see when you're trying to find a seat on the subway. <laughs> how, how was the... What was the reaction of the NBA? I mean, were they basically just trying to ignore it or did they do they feel any sort of difference or 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 opinion change because of these these rule improvements that, you know, obviously the stodgy NBA had not really or was not really interested in? Uh, no, they did not seem to care. Uh, they thought they had the product and they had the game and the ABL can do whatever they want. They could have people riding on somebody else's shoulders to score. Uh, they saw it all as a gimmick and didn't feel once they signed players, they didn't feel threatened by the play of the, uh, uh, of the ABL. And as long as they ignored it, then the ABL couldn't prove that it meant something in terms of how they, uh, how they could play against NBA teams. The NBA did not want to give them any recognition at all. And in fact, criticizing them would have been a good thing for the ABL because it would have shown that they were either threatening or at least recognized by the NBA. The NBA chose to just ignore what was going on pretty much. Uh, and I guess the uh, result of that was somewhat mixed, right? Because you mentioned in Chicago, it seemed like the, uh, the ABL was doing uh, pretty decently with the majors. However, like in Los Angeles, for example, you know, the Jets didn't even sort of make it past the first full season. So I guess... It was probably more mixed than anything. And then also you have these uh, the franchise changes in the middle of the season as well. Um, uh, you know, it seems like it's a mixed, uh, a mixed bag in terms of the success of that first season, quote unquote. Yeah. Well, there, as, as you just said, there, there, there are other factors involved. I mean, the, we talked about parking, transportation, public transportation, uh, the number of, of uh, African-Americans on a team, the, the feelings about segregation and integration in various cities, the shooting, the game, the tradition. There were just so many factors in each city. Some were more important than others. But overall, there was little to to overcome the uh, the feeling that the ABL was uh, just not going to be there to stay. There was there wasn't any any tradition and any any foundation. The NBA was lucky to have a foundation. I mean, it had only been around for 12 years. So there was a lot of skepticism, justifiably, as it turned out, that the ABL was going to be more than just a circus league. All right. But before we get to the second and, and pivotal season, right, or, or not not much of a season, um, I, I do want to come back to the, uh, the the Pipers in particular and Steinbrenner, because in the middle of the season, right, you had arguably and admittedly a, a legendary uh, coach, African-American in background, he, John McClendon, uh, it would seem like things were going quite well, but uh, apparently Steinbrenner sold a player during during not only the season, but apparently in the middle of the game that maybe McClendon didn't, he didn't even know about. And uh, the circumstance of that seems like that was what drove McClendon to, to leave the team somehow. Um, well, uh, partly then and yeah. partly that it was... Uh it was that Steinbrenner, more than any other owner, and this again is, is no shock, was so much more involved with the team and trying to be part of the team per se. Uh, the 
other other owners were older and had real lives. Uh, Steinbrenner obviously didn't do a whole lot at uh, at the shipbuilding yard and the office. His family was was that. And when uh, when Steinbrenner ended up with uh, the Pipers, he wanted to be more involved, and and he was. And when he uh, when he got too involved, it meant that. McClendon, McClendon was close to so many of his players. Many of them had played for him at Tennessee A&I. He had uh, Barnhill and, and, and Worley, uh, as, as well as Barnett, had all played for him. And it was, he was close to his players. And, and to, uh, to Steinbrenner, the players were just objects. I mean, just the way he uh, dealt with things later on with the Yankees, too. He, if it wasn't good for him... And it really didn't matter. They were all pieces of equipment. And after having overstepped what uh, McClendon figured were were his own bounds, he McClendon just uh, left the team, which turned out for Steinbrenner to be a a, a positive for a time because the uh, the the Jets had folded because they didn't have enough financial backing, and he got Bill Sharman to come and Sharman had his own reputation that he could bring there. And it, it made for a, a good situation as far as Steinbrenner was concerned. And he, he later rehired McClendon as his, uh, uh, in the front office for a time. And so they, they, they reconciled in that, in that sense. But McClendon was a, was a smart guy and a good coach, but, there was just too much Steinbrenner initially, and and Sharman would have felt the same way after a while too if if the whole league hadn't collapsed. Well, uh, only exacerbated or or underlined, I guess, by winning a championship, right? So I don't think Mr. Steinbrenner would be criticized as being wrong, or at least in his mind, right? Because all those moves probably, in retrospect, look like they were genius, or you know, the doings of uh, you know of of an owner who kind of quote unquote and, knew what he was doing, right? And that's right. But uh, again, you you to to coin a phrase, you, you can't win without the players. And Cleveland had uh, the better players. And it may have been because they had been well coached in college by McClendon, but they, uh, and, and part of that was, again, segregation, because so many of these guys couldn't have been recruited by predominantly white universities. So Tennessee A&I had uh, uh, the, some of the top players, but they were unknown because they'd been doing all black school and they ended up and they played well together because they'd been playing well together. So that uh, Cleveland, yes, was a, was a fine team with, with really good players. And Steinbrenner was, was lucky to back into that. And then the guys who, uh, who fit in John with the Tennessee and I players like John Cox and Connie Deerking, um, Archie D's were all good team players who, who knew how to play together. And they, they, were, they were justifiably the best team because they had some of the best players, even though Hawkins was clearly the, the best player in the league. He just didn't have enough with him. I mean, uh, Cleveland had top players, and then later with folding of L.A., they, they even improved themselves a little bit. They ended up for a time having... Uh, uh, Hal Lear, who they were able to uh, then trade it again, but 
Cleveland had had the best players, and Kansas City had players that people didn't even know about who were good. And ultimately, they found out how good Bill Bridges was because Bill Bridges was a Hall of Fame player, and and Larry Staverman was a uh, was a great shooter uh, for Kansas City. But they, the Kansas City played well together. But if you looked at individually, Kansas City probably didn't have the best individual players in the West, but they had a, a team that, that played well together. And I, Cleveland had guys who had always played well together. Well, right, let's talk about Kansas City, the Kansas City Steers, because uh, they're they're uh, a, an integral part of what happened during the offseason and the beginning of the next second ill-fated season of the ABL. Uh, and in particular, I guess I'm, I'm looking at some 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 data here around uh, some machinations, I guess, between, uh, again, Mr. Steinbrenner and maybe taking some of elements of his Cleveland team and the Kansas City team and, I don't know, not necessarily doing something in the ABL, but maybe actually making a move for the vaunted NBA. Is that fair to say, based on my knowledge here? Uh, it's, he was, it was always possible. I mean, Steinbrenner was always looking to improve himself, and if that meant... Uh, trying to take his team into the NBA, then he, then he would do it. But uh, Kansas City, on the other hand, was just at first trying to establish themselves as a, as a big league entity in any sport. And this was the same year, I guess, they, they had just started the AFL. So Kansas City was certainly uh, new to professional sports, and the opportunity to have a professional basketball team would mean that they were one step closer to having a professional baseball team too, which did take a while, another uh, five or six years. But uh, the Steers went about it, what I consider in the right way. They hired a top guy as their coach in Jack McMahon, who coached so many different places and played. He was a, he was a, a solid, slow St. John's player, but a good shooter and very fundamental. And he was able to recognize good ball players and they were able to take first Bill Bridges, as I said, who was who was fabulous and he was not big, but he, he certainly was tenacious. He knew how to get in position for rebounds and uh, and was the, the key to their, their team until he ended up going to uh, the Hawks after the collapse of the league. Uh, Staverman had been somebody who'd been around a while and no one knew about because he'd always gone to little places, but he was a great shooter and, and he fit in well with McMahon's offense and McMahon had some, had, had rebounders. I mean, he had Bridges, Staverman, and then he had Gene Tormolian who, who probably couldn't move as much as a, as a fire hydrant could, but he was he was big across. He was just a big guy. Uh, he was supposedly 6'9", 232, but in pictures, he had to be at least 250. And, and he was rough. Guys did not like to play against him. So they had a, uh, they had a, a top rebounding team, and then they had uh, some guards that were very quick. And they, they ex- exploited that and played well together and ended up being just where they should have been, and that was in the championship against Cleveland. Well, they stayed stable, right? Uh, the Wrens stayed uh, for another year. The majors still stayed in, uh, in their locale in Chicago. 
Uh, but, you know, clearly there was uh, uh, still more movement afoot. I mean, the Hawaii Chiefs moved to Long Beach uh, the following yep. season. You had uh, the San Francisco team, which we have not talked about, the Saints. Uh, looks like that the Warriors kind of, you know, made them sort of look for alternatives and they went across the bay to Oakland. And then you had the tapers move again back to, uh, well, in this case, to uh, to Washington. So stability, not necessarily uh, guaranteed. Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, is Steinbrenner's moves now? I, I think we need to probably talk about this, right? I, it's my understanding that uh, that the that there are a couple of things going on in Steinbrenner's world where he not only wanted to say, look at merging with the steers of Kansas City, but then maybe making a couple of other uh, moves for some some players like uh, Jerry Lucas, of all people, uh, and almost trying to force the issue to somehow get to the NBA. Um, well, he know, did get yeah. Jerry Lucas. Uh, it was unfortunate for Lucas because he signed a personal services contract. And so he he offered him a lot more money. And Lucas uh, was going to play in the in the ABL, but there was no ABL. And there was no other alternative since Steinbrenner had him for, for a year. And he ended up uh, sitting until he could play in the, uh, the NBA with the Royals. And Steinbrenner had, had good intentions, good in the sense for himself and for the league, but uh, it, it just w- wasn't enough because nobody was going to games. And no matter what they did, no matter what Steinbrenner did, uh, signing better players, which is what he was attempting to do, and finding better places to play, there just wasn't enough interest. Maybe the media in Cleveland, uh, the fact that there wasn't overall television, there, there just was no opportunity for Cleveland to get more than they did, and Steinbrenner was was... I don't think he was mortgaged to the hilt. That would be crazy. But he was pouring a lot of money in, probably more than anybody else. And he might have done more, but the rest of the owners simply wouldn't and couldn't. All right. I'm sorry. So to clarify, so by signing Lucas, right, this was ostensibly during the Piper's still existence in the ABL in the earlier part of the season, right? Right. Okay. And then then the sort of the backroom kind of conversations with the commissioner at the time of the NBA, uh, Maurice Podoloff. So... My thought is that it's so you, you hinted at, a, at another appellation for Kansas City. Was the goal for uh, the, the NBA franchise that, that Steinbrenner was trying to sort of baby put together to be in Kansas City? Possibly. OK. Uh, I, it's, 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 it's hard. It's, it's difficult to, to determine what was below what you see. Uh, the, you know, the uh, the. Samperstein's papers don't speak specifically to that being the case, but it was certainly possible. Uh, but that's about all I could say. It was they were uh, they were trying to get their their teams together. Uh, there were guys from different, like the uh, the owner of the Steers uh, was also going to be a stockholder in the Pipers. I mean there. Were, they were trying to to find a, a way to get at least a couple super teams that could then be picked up by the NBA. Got it. And it, it there wasn't great loyalty to Saperstein. The the loyalty was, I think, ultimately to themselves and to can we get into the NBA? All of the 
the the dream was to get into the NBA in in one way or another. I uh, got it. So that's interesting. Okay. So the 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 moments that sort of led to the ABL collapsing. It seems to me that the ABL, and I'm guessing in the in the person of Saperstein, right, found out about what was going on and and, and sued to block sort of this move. I, I I guess my sense is that that was sort of the the straw that kind of broke the camel's back on the ABL continuing for another season, let alone the current second season that they were in the midst of. Is that a fair sa- yeah, statement? Yeah. Yes, yes, it is because uh, the 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 nefarious double dealings by the owners, plus the fact that people weren't making any money, there there was no future that could be seen. If they if they weren't going to be able to work together, and they weren't going to be able to make any money under the circumstances they had, then it seemed all for no reason. I mean, they, why not just throw money in a toilet? Because they didn't have a future. Uh, with with teams double dealing and trying to to pull out secretly, combine their their forces and get into the NBA, uh, there there wouldn't be a third year. So in the middle of the second year, the league ended up shutting down. The first they went to six teams, and those six teams hung around for a time, but it, it wasn't long. And ultimately, that was the uh, that was the end of the league, even though there were uh, there were some of the owners would have been willing to go on for a little while, but not for long. All right, you uh, you referenced uh, the the family papers uh, uh, of the Saperstein, uh, uh, I guess, uh, legacy and, and family. Um, I'm wondering, you know, uh, the demise of the league. I, I suspect that Abe probably tried to you know keep things going as as long as he could, and and being the originator of the concept in the first place. Um, but he died fairly shortly thereafter. Um, I, I doubt yeah. of, I doubt of a broken heart, but it, it probably had to just just gnaw at him that he was ultimately unsuccessful to sort of keep this thing going. And worse, maybe through some behind the scenes things that he was not necessarily privy to uh, helped undermine it. No. Oh, I'm sh- I'm sure that was the case. Uh, no, Saverstein was used to doing a lot of backroom deals. And the fact that people out backroom deal dealt him probably was was very painful, and uh, and the fact that he he ended up being uh, having a, a an early death because of illness uh, it 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 couldn't have been something he was that that helped him get better. Uh, he died of, I think he was 61, and uh, that was that was not uncommon to be dying in your 60s, but it was not typical. Uh, he was he, he traveled a lot, he worked hard, and probably just did not take care of himself very well. Well, he, he uh, yeah, he he, 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 he had a heart attack and died quickly. Well, it, it it seemed like he didn't sort of go back to the well, so to speak, in professional sports. And and frankly, I don't think think Steinbrenner even went back to basketball after that either, did he? No, no, he uh, he did not. And I and I don't know if he made any efforts, but I would guess that if he did, the NBA would not have uh, been supportive. They had seen what he was capable of, and they didn't want any more part of him. 
So uh, I think he just uh, husbanded his time and his money until he had a chance to, to get in on the Yankees. Well, Saperstein obviously had, um, and I'm sorry, I keep saying Saperstein. You mentioned this. You say Saperstein. Is there any debate about how he, how he said the name? I suspect maybe you know better than I. Uh, uh, I do not know because people I knew used both terms. So I would say that Saperstein is probably the most common, but since the, uh, since the name Stein is, is pronounced Stein, spelled the same way, I don't know what he cared about in terms of the the pronunciation, but most would have said Saperstein. All right. Well, we put out we put that out to our uh, to our completists out there, and you'll be surprised to find out that people will let us know. Um, oh, good. But <laughs> it uh, which is neither here nor there. Um, uh, it speaks, I guess, to the passion that people sort of uh, place or or project onto this show for for whatever reasons we don't know why. Uh, but uh, clearly, uh, he was however you pronounce his last name. Uh, very uh, influential in, in the sport of basketball. And obviously in 1971 uh, was elected to the Basketball Hall of Fame. I'm wondering, and again, I'm not an historian. I just play one on the pseudo radio. Uh, I'm wondering <laughs> I'm wondering if that was largely, be, I, I suspect that's largely because of, of his work with the Harlem Globetrotters and the earlier days of professional basketball's existence. But I got to think the ABL, especially with some of the uh, changes to the rules that uh, a bunch of which actually all of them have been since incorporated into the modern day game uh, were probably was probably part of of the collective uh, to to make him induction worthy. No. Well, I would agree with you that first it was he was so prominent for the uh, for the Globetrotters that that would make sense in and of itself. But the fact that the ABL and the three point shot came out of that league. Uh, and, and of course, if, uh, if one wants to recognize how much he was doing to, uh, to integrate sports, uh, that also would be another reason. But most people would think of him as the, the owner of and uh, the leader of the, the Globetrotters. But of course, he didn't start the Globetrotters. Uh, I did a paper, a chapter in a book that's just coming out now on a guy named Tommy Brookins. Tommy Brookins was actually the creator of the Globetrotters. And uh, and Saperstein, being the booking agent, ended up taking over the team. But Brookins was really the creator of, of the Globetrotters. All the guys from the original Globetrotters had gone to high school together. But again, that's neither here nor there. Your question about Saperstein is, is right. I think it was that he was uh, known for all the Globetrotter promotion, the promotion of basketball worldwide. I mean, the Globetrotters were known as the international uh, um, ambassadors of basketball, and, and they were. People came out from so many countries to see them. So on that alone, he should have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's very interesting and a very interesting legacy. And frankly, you know, the, bo- the book that you've written – uh, which we will uh, uh, plug here again. It's Abe Saperstein or Saperstein and the American Basketball League, 1960 to 1963. The upstarts who shot for three and lost to the NBA. It is uh, published by McFarland. It is uh, available wherever fine books are found. Uh, you can find a link to it on our on our website. I think, um, you know, this little uh, part of of not only his history, but sort of the the sport of professional basketball's history. It's it's uh, you know, these are things that we try to 
you know, try to shine some light on because I think they're easily overlooked and uh, oft forgotten. And, you know, you, you dig a little bit, you find some uh, interesting stories and, and names that have uh, amazing and, and substantial impact, not only on the sports that they're, they were involved in, but just, just in general. I mean, Steinbrenner, it's a whole other sort of set of stories, right, for other reasons and for in other sports environments, right? But the seeds of his, shall we say, mercurial ownership style – uh, that I think any Yankees fan during the 70s and early 80s would remember vividly uh, was pretty much on on uh, on parade there in his uh, his little dealings with uh, the ABL and the Cleveland Pipers, right? So, Am- absolutely. And you know the the books that I write on basketball, and this is I have four that are uh, what we might call more academic books. I have a, a few things for uh, for high school students, uh, some biographies of uh, Shaquille O'Neal and one of Bill Russell, and then some encyclopedias that I've edited. But these four books that I've done were all to satisfy me more than anything else. I wanted to know stuff. I mean, I'd I'd see these names and I'd want to find a book to read about something. And when I couldn't find it and kept doing research, I, I ended up writing a book because I wanted to know more. And I figured I couldn't be that singular that I was the only one who would want to know about this. Some people probably would want to know if they at least had some hint that such existed, like the ABL. Most people get it confused with the ABA or they get it confused if they know anything about earlier years with the ABL that existed in the 1920s. They, they simply don't know. And once getting the opportunity to find out, I think it's, it's an interesting story and people enjoy it. But, uh, you don't know what you don't know. So uh, I've written most of these books because I wanted to know more and ended up just doing the research and writing it. And I love that. That's you know, curiosity. I mean, it killed the cat, but it uh, it keeps this podcast and maybe your writings uh, alive and well. Um, I, I do also want to call out, you, you do have another book that McFarland also published, which uh, may be uh, grist for another conversation uh, if I haven't bored you to tears already. Uh, in another <laughs> in a, in another date, and that's the uh, National Basketball League, right? A history, nineteen thirty five to nineteen forty nine, also published by McFarland. And I, you know, that's yeah. that's uh, we don't have to go into this now, but I mean, you know, nineteen forty nine was a pivotal year in professional basketball because the NBL and what was known as the Basketball Association of America combined. Maybe it was a merger, maybe it wasn't. We can d- delve into that at some point to basically become the NBA itself. So there are lots of tree roots here in in all of this, and. Uh, and the ABL may be a small little tributary, but uh, but certainly not unimportant, uh, given some of the legacies that uh, we, we already talked about. So, No, no. And, and, and as I said earlier, on my books, the interviews are the most fascinating part because finding people who were actually were there and participated and hearing what they have to say. You know, uh, for the NBL book, being able to talk with George Mikan and have him tell me about playing in the NBL and the players and the only reason I was able to do that was because I got friendly with his roommate from from college, uh, Dick Tripto, who was a lived in Lake Forest. And uh, Dick had played for the Chicago Gears, and then Dick wrote a number of books, which he published himself. Dick was just a fabulous guy. He died a, a few years ago. And I was so fortunate to become friends with Dick and to be able to to have him help me in getting a lot of these NBL guys, we would do the interviews together. Dick was, was fabulous. And it was, and I enjoyed the book so much 
but being friends with Dick was was the best. Well, I look, uh, you've been the best with this uh, this conversation. This has been really cool. I've, I mean, I've learned a lot, and uh, I always tend to when uh, when when doing these interviews and. Um, uh, I hope our audiences uh, gain a little bit of insight as well, and maybe, God forbid, actually uh, purchases a couple of extra copies of the book and or uh, want to do their own research and be spurred on by uh, your curiosity uh, similarly. So um, I want to thank you tremendously, Murray Nelson, for being part of our uh, little fledgling podcast. And and hopefully we could do it again, maybe uh, around the NBL for uh, from your other book, if you're ever interested. That would be great, Tim. Thanks so much for talking to me. All right, there's our conversation with uh, Dr. Professor Murray Nelson. Thank you very much, Murray, for joining us and uh, learned quite a bit about uh, the American Basketball League, at least the second incarnation thereof, uh, and Abe Saperstein's uh, uh, journey into creating uh, a league that, uh, that, that maintains uh, a certain level of, uh, of influence in the game today, uh, even though it is oft forgotten. Uh, and some interesting stories there. Um, from uh, Mr. Nelson, and we appreciate uh, his time very much. I want to remind you that uh, the book that we spent most of our time uh, sort of revolving around is called Abe Saperstein and the American Basketball League, The Upstarts Who Shot for Three and Lost to the, M- to the NBA, he says. Uh, that is published by McFarland. Uh, it is available wherever fine books are found. And of course, one of those places is directly on our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find uh, you'll find a link to that book uh, from uh, the episode uh, when it is posted. And obviously, if you're listening to it now, it's posted, so it's on the website. So go check it out. Uh, Murray also wrote, and we referenced a little bit near the end of the show, or the interview at least, uh, the National Basketball League a history. Uh, and remember, the, the NBL, the National Basketball League, uh, ran from 1935 to 1949 and itself merged with uh, what was called the Basketball Association of America, or the BAA, to form today's NBA, circa 1949. So uh, that book, uh, the National Basketball League, a history, uh, also published by McFarland, is also available where fine books are found in all those places that uh, we talked about, including our website. Which, again, as a reminder for all things this show, is GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. Uh, there's lots of cool stuff there. You can sign up for our email newsletter, which someday we will actually publish. Uh, you can find out uh, uh, books and other things. Uh, you missed an episode, whatever. It's all there for you, uh, as uh, as we say. And um, you can also find us on social media, and we encourage you to follow us there as well. That's a good way to communicate and at least find out what's going on with our show, too. On Twitter, that's at Good Seats Still. Uh, you will find us on Facebook. There's a, a page devoted to the Good Seats Still Available show there. Uh, and on Instagram, you can find us at Good Seats Still Available. All right, enough of the promotional banter. Thank you for listening. We uh, always love your comments. Keep them coming. And uh, look forward to our next episode together on our journey through the world of forgotten sports here on Good Seats Still Available. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you soon on our next episode. Take care. Take care.